<clears throat> Welcome to season two of Let's Talk Memoir. Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Sonia Huber. She's the author of seven books, including the new guide, Voice First, a writer's manifesto, and the award-winning essay collection on chronic pain, Pain Woman Takes Your Keys, and other essays from a nervous system. Her other books include Supremely Tiny Acts, A Memoir in a Day, Opa Nobody, Cover Me, A Health Insurance Memoir, and The Backwards Research Guide for Writers. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Brevity, Creative Nonfiction, and other outlets. She teaches at Fairfield University and in the Fairfield Low Residency MFA program. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so happy that you're here and really excited that Deborah Gartney connected us. Deborah Gartney is the memoirist and teacher who keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you something that really struck me as someone who's written a memoir that was fairly linear, but took over the course of years to kind of cover. Mm -hmm. In Supremely Tiny Acts, A Memoir of a Day, the main story takes place over the course of just one day. And then you move between, you know, the present and flashbacks and asides. So how right. did you discover this was the structure it needed to have? I realized that I was writing the book sort of in the middle of the day itself. And then I knew that I needed to do flashbacks at various points. But actually, that was the hardest part. Like once I had the day set up, I had this chunk where I was going back to the action itself. So where I get arrested in Times Square as part mm -hmm. of a climate protest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I at first tried to put it like kind of weave it all throughout the body of the memoir. Mm -hmm. But then I realized that the reader actually needed that information sort of up front. And so I had to sort of, you know, push a lot more than I had originally intended and make it very compact, kind of at the beginning. And then I allowed myself freedom to kind of do other flashbacks on the rest of my life mm -hmm. toward the end of the memoir. But like the, the reader needed to be grounded first in like why I was going to court and what the point of the book was. Right, right, right. Did you want to do it within the span of a day? Like, did you, did that appeal to you? It, I'd been sort of obsessed with the form for like a decade. And <laughs> really? you know, there's, there's so many beautiful works of fiction that are, you know, contained in a day, like Mrs. Mm -hmm. Dalloway. And then there's this book that I was obsessed with by, it's a novel by Nicholson Baker called The Mezzanine. And it's just like sort of nothing happens. There's a guy sitting in his cubicle at work. But I just found it so engaging because I love that idea of, you know, the challenge of can I actually just portray the random loops that happen in a random person's mind? Right. And so then I was, you know, for a decade, I was like, could, could a person do this in nonfiction? <laughs> yeah. And, and then actually, so then Ander Monson, who is an essayist who runs Essaying Daily, put out this project I think it was in 2017 and 18, like it was called the What Happened Project. And mm -hmm. so it was like he saw into my brain. He just invited everyone to make little essays about the same day. 
And so when I did that, mine was like 500 words, 600 words. I got a little taste of it and I was like, this is totally doable. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of ways, that kind of nudged me toward trying a book length version. Yeah, it's so, I don't know, when I, when I, think about it. It feels so appealing. Not that it will take away a memoirist's challenges about time management mm-hmm. and flashbacks. I mean, there's always time management and attention right. and all that. But something seems more manageable, unless I'm wrong about this, about right. kind of at least having that front container that's just one day. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem we face in memoir really is endless material, right? And so <laughs> yeah. like being having any strategy to limit it is really appealing. I agree. Yes. Yes. It makes me really happy. Of course, if I attempted it, I'd probably be just as, you know, like <laughs> baffled. So so let me ask you, of the structures that you've opted for in your various memoirs and books, is there one you're more fond of at this point? I think what I seem to want to do over and over again is to have structures where some theme or image is related to a flashback. Hmm. So, and I think I think what what I mean is that I want the flashbacks to emerge organically as opposed to having like more of a mechanical structure. And I don't know why I feel this way. <laughs> and also, I am not sure it's the best idea for my life because, like, it really makes things difficult. <laughs> can you can you explain a little bit, like, with an example so I yeah. understand better? Sure. Like, so at one point, I'll just, as an example from Suprema Tiny Axe, there was a point at which, like, I I found this little glass egg in a gift shop. And, like, I used that. I was going to buy it for my teenage son. But then I use that as sort of like a jumping off thing into like mothering. Mm. And so like, yeah, for some reason I'm drawn to like using an image to go into a flashback. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, so I'm sort of always hunting around in the manuscript for little tunnels to get into a flashback Mm -hmm. and then get to get back out. Mm. And transitions always really just kind of make me insane. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, do you do you tend to worry about them later? Do you try to just deal with them later because they bother you or do you try to tackle them as you're going through the manuscript, like as you're writing? I I try to like actually, you know, what I'll do is I'll just write sort of like the base layer of here's what ha- what's happened and then I'll kind of mark like, oh, this seems to allude to something. Mm. But often it's like multiple drafts before I get the transition straight. And mm-hmm. also those are the times where, you know, I'll wake up at two in the morning sort of wincing because like, oh, that transition <laughs> is so bad. I just realized. <laughs> That's hilarious. The transition. That's funny. We should do like a poll uh, for memoirs. <laughs> what is the thing that keeps you up at night? Totally. Write it in. Let us know. It'll be different, I bet, for most of us. So what would you say to a memoirist who felt stuck about the structure or container for their manuscript? What What are some tricks or ways to kind of loosen it up and and get into that? That's an awesome question. And I think I I will have to steal from my my dear friend, Jill Christman, who's a memoirist and essayist. And she talks a lot about choosing a different starting place. And she calls it rooting. Where is your memoir essay rooted? And for me, like trying a completely different place to start something especially if it's a quiet moment that's very connected to voice or character, Mm. sort of 
acts as a lens to focus everything that follows. So yeah, mm-hmm. I like to just, you know, willy-nilly choose alternate starting points. Yeah, I really like that too. I feel, and this really gets into sort of the voice aspect of what we're going to talk about in your new book, mm-hmm. that idea, because for me at least, I find it propels me. I find yeah. that voice, voice I can't really, sometimes I have no, I don't know where it came from. I don't know what's happening, but it's moving me. That's and awesome. so if nothing else, I have that to at least write with. Exactly. And that it gives you energy to go forward and you need that. Yes. Because sometimes ugh, writing action or knowing the logistics that I have to articulate just really drives me up a wall. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So so let's let's talk about voice first. Can you share a little bit about this book and what void maybe that you hope it fills in the craft book genre? Definitely. Well, it comes from, you know, my own struggles with voice. I think I I first when I first learned memoir, I thought about it in terms of how do I craft scenes from my life to sort of deliver the, my life material? And I wasn't at all as comfortable with my essaying voice. Mm-hmm. And then I felt like I had to sort of discover it over time. And it felt like I was working on it really late. And so, you know, I, I started to pay attention to voice to try and figure out what I sounded like, what my essaying voice was supposed to be. And and then in thinking about it, I started to realize that the 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 common advice we hear, the, the advice we hear to find our voice had always really confused me and it kind of been counterproductive mm-hmm. because it made me think like okay, which of these voices yeah. is mine? <laughs> which is the right one? I'm going to pick the wrong one. <laughs> and so then I started to just investigate for myself like oh I actually have multiple and started to play with you know my voices at different ages in my life that's sort of what I was doing when I was working on a memoir that just wouldn't work for the longest time and and I think ultimately what I want to do is help folks to find the essaying and wonder wandering wondering voices that can give them a sense of authority to to speak to the reader, which is something that, yeah, I, I just feel like I still struggle with. That's so interesting. I think what you were saying was allow the writer to meander and find their essay voice. Exactly. And allow, give them the permission to do that kind of searching and wandering, and that will help infuse their work or, or strengthen their work. Definitely. And I've also, another main sort of strategy that I'm looking at in the book is exactly what you were saying. The idea of honing into a voice as a generative thing, right? So that you hone Mm. in a voice first and then the voice helps you excavate material and helps you even like see things in a new way. So we we often think of voice as sort of like a surface polish, Mm -hmm. like at the end. And so I'm sort of flipping that and talking about voice as kind of the core driving energy for writing. Yes, which, I mean, for me, maybe it's because I have an acting background. I'm not sure. Oh, cool. Yeah, like that really that really appeals to me. And here's something you wrote in Voice First that I wanted to talk a little bit about. Quote, if we feel something, voice is what guides us to get the mess onto the page. When we follow a voice and listen to what it's telling us, we can then figure out what genre might be more appropriate for the task. So – you know, the power of voice is also helpful in determining, well, I guess the structure, the genre, mm-hmm. what it is, where we're going to go. 
So do you feel like writers don't have this information or don't pay enough attention to it? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in in writing the book, I went and read a lot of different writers' viewpoints on voice. And I went back to one of my favorite authors, Peter Elbow, who writes a lot about the writing process and composition. And he's one of the only folks, you know, and I, I worried that maybe his work wasn't as well known today. And so I really wanted to share a lot of his brilliance because he talks about the multiple voices that we can access and sort of the range of possibilities we have in writing. And I think, you know, as writing terminology, what I experienced sort of being raised as a writer is that we have tended to collapse the the term over time to that one narrow Mm-hmm. You know, sort of mysterious thing that people, <laughs> they just say, like, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. Uh-huh. And I just felt that that's not helpful for writers. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes I can point to a piece and I'll call it voicey, for yeah. example, if it's a really, really strong current in there when yes. I'm reading work. But I think this is the other, another quote I pulled from your book, Voice First. The idea of an authentic voice also doesn't make sense to me in terms of a writer's process and life. Mm-hmm. If a writer happens upon that so-called authentic voice, does that mean the previous voices were false or imposters? Mm-hmm. Would that authentic voice then once discovered stay constant and reliable even as the writer's life spurs change and perspectives evolve. And I think that that's what you you say a lot in the book mm-hmm. is that there it's not voice, it's voice says. Right. And it's right. important to know we have a lot of them because I think maybe that's what stymied you and certainly has stymied me when I, – because I relate to what you said earlier about thinking, when am I going to get my writer's voice? What is my writer's voice? Mm-hmm. And and some writers, I feel like – I don't know if it's a misunderstanding or the way we've been taught – sound like maybe they always have the same voice or right. when you read their work, especially essays – you might think, well, I'm always going to get this sound from them, this this angle yeah, from them. And exactly. so then I thought, I thought when I was in graduate school, well, what's my voice? Like, and someone said to me at one point, one of my advisors, well, you sound a lot like so-and-so. And I thought, okay, maybe that's my voice. Right. You're just like, oh, I'm in a slot. Great. I found my <laughs> home, you know? Yeah, definitely. And then that's, you know, it's limiting because you could almost think, okay, my voice is over here, but this piece that I've written is not in that voice. Does that yeah. mean it's wrong? Right. And what's what's true? Am I telling the truth here? Yeah. Which yeah. we have lots of truths. Definitely. And tons of persona, right? Depending on like different identities we have in our lives or different viewpoints, different activities. Yeah. Yeah. And I also feel, and this is kind of tangential, but I feel like I once wondered about writing the same period of history from a different memoir perspective. You know, of Mm -hmm. course I could. I could go back in 10 years and write my story differently. And the takeaways would be so different. And your voice would probably be different too, right? Like depending on like the experiences you'd gone through. Yeah, definitely. There's another quality, which I I think about in memoir a bunch, and I think it comes up for writers as well. And I think it's really important to pay attention to. And I'm going to read yet another quote from your book, Voice First. (laughs) Maybe you wish you you could read them, but I didn't send them to you in advance. Um, But this is the last one, I promise. We have to watch ourselves and listen to ourselves in order to hear and catch those voices and thoughts. In many ways, this sets us a deeper and larger goal of noticing those voices that we might not want to hear and of accepting a more varied version of ourselves than the one we might see as our one 
goal, singular voice, or ideal. So I would love for you to speak to to this and the significance for the memoirist in particular. Oh, definitely. So, I mean, I guess this comes from like my own voice trouble in the past. So, you know, I'm from an area south of Chicago. I sort of have this, like I have a pretty, to my ears, it still sounds like quite a honky Midwestern accent. And, you know, because my voice is shaped by all the places I come from, I think like, like most people, like even when I hear a recording of myself, I tend to wince and be like, oh gosh, like you want to sound smart, but you actually always sound like an extra from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you know? (laughs) There's always a lot of dude and awesome and totally. And so, you know, so I spent a lot of time feeling like I wanted to write essays where I didn't sound like myself on purpose. Like I wanted to sound like someone smarter. I wanted to like actually make myself different on the page. And, you know, that worked for a while and that was fun. But, but, you know, when, then when you go back and you start trying to write hard stuff from your life or to be super honest with yourself, then it really helps to be listening to the voices that are your actual speaking, communicating voices, because they're the ones that are attached to the experience. So I had to go back to some of the voices that made me wince, you know, some of the voices connected to eras when I made mistakes and kind of to get over my cringing at the whole range of stuff that I actually brought to the table, who I actually am. Mm. And so I think, you know, in, in sort of working with voice, for me, it is at a deep level, it's about sort of dealing with shame and sort of like a whole range of emotions about like, you know, I would like to sound this way, but this is my, this is what I actually do have. Mm. And then somehow in the process of naming the voices and identifying them, they sort of turned from deficits to assets. Mm. Like, oh, I do have this thing to talk about. Like, come on, punk rock girl. Do you know what (laughs) I mean? Like, by making them persona, I kind of, you know, it gives me a chance to play and use for the good things that I was once embarrassed about. Yeah, I I understand that. And I, I also think I feel like I make fun of myself no matter what. Like I yeah. I have always like maybe I think it's a never ending challenge actually because sometimes yeah. when I feel I'm fully formed, I've become the person I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And and I and I do an appearance or I talk on Zoom or whatever it is, and then I hear myself back, <laughs> I just wanna punch myself. <laughs> like <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, yeah. I just like stop taking yourself so seriously. And then then of course I'm a highly self-conscious person and so then I might even make fun of the person who tries to not take themselves so seriously. So right. I guess in a way it's sort of 
I don't know, is there sort of like a humility piece and a mm-hmm. vulnerable piece and being able to be honest with yourself? And like, if I have been try hard to be able to, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, I mean, no, I'm I just know. being, yes. I'm not saying that you are, but for example, when I do little things on lives or I, I record things to promote things, my teenagers, especially my daughter will say, stop using your fake voice, mom. Oh she's like, gosh. stop using that voice. And I, I, I don't know what she's talking about, but of course I do know what she's talking about. Right. And it's very hard for me. And I'm, I'm literally being, I'm like nail on the head right now. I'm not talking about writing. I'm talking about, you know, that, that persona, right? That and I'm parenting teenagers, right? You always get that feedback. <laughs> Listen, I try not to throw my kids under the bus, but today one asked me if I had a mental problem. And yesterday the other one asked me if I was a sociopath. So oh my God. I just stood there. I thought I was acting pretty normally. Like, I thought I was handling their situations pretty well, but very sad about that today. Um, So I come to you mentally unstable, but trying to finish my podcast. Um, No, yeah, I'm a little rattled. But I do think, like, I think you're right. And that's what I love about, for me at least, I'm curious what kind of exercises, if you're working with someone, for example, Mm -hmm. or a writer comes to you and says, I'm really stuck, I'm having a hard time breaking open this piece or cracking this open wide? What mm-hmm. what can I do? Like, is there some type of a go-to that you recommend? What I've been doing in my classes over the past couple of weeks, and what I, my favorite is like a way to sort of get things warmed up really quickly is to do a free write on what annoys you or pisses you off. Mm. Yeah. And I found that over and over, especially with students who feel very disconnected from their writing, that the opportunity to rant, actually students said about that with such delight. (laughs) You know, it's sort of, that's another one of those things. Like I think as far as the parts of ourselves that we might judge or shame, Mm -hmm. like for me, I'm always like, you know, I'll vent in my journal and then I'll say, why aren't you more agreeable? Why aren't you more grateful, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so the opportunity to just actually be honest about, you know, go on on a tear about something, what it often does is first it, it clears the decks, right? Yeah. And you start to get fully, you know, sort of in touch with an element of yourself that is, is, you know, has faults. And then often what happens is that turns to something else, you know, like once you've collected and sort of like swept the annoyance to one side, Mm. there's often like a question underneath or a sort of a question for yourself, like, why does this keep coming up? Or, Mm. you know, do I have to make a change in my life to get away from this person or this situation or whatever? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I love, especially when I'm when I'm stuck to to try really hard to letting my irritable self out. Yeah. That seems like a disarming way to go about it because it's fun and it's unexpected and you might think you're just talking about this thing that's actually kind of comical. It's funny when people get mad. I mean, it's kind of funny when people get mad. Right. But then maybe you kind of have this little eruption and you're left with sort of these you know, little soft, soft dust pile that that is actually very sad or quiet and trying to figure out what's really going on. But it's disarming. And I like that. Exactly. And it's kind of, you know, it is something that we all share is like, none of our days ever go according to plan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, right. And also, as many times as we make promises to ourselves or to others that we won't yeah. do the blank, we right. often do the blank because we do the blank. That's who we are. So right. it's very hard to break those patterns. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So is there a book form or structure that you're really excited to try that you haven't done yet? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I have been working forever on two projects. So I'm, I've, I've been getting really into place-based writing. And so I've been working, you know, I always write more than one book at once. Hmm. So all of these, the books that I've published recently are actually all books that I call recess books. So they're books that are on the side of the big book. <laughs> oh my gosh. I wish I could be so productive. Wow. But it's so, I think like, I have this sneaking suspicion that maybe none of my big books will ever work. So mm -hmm. I don't know if this is just a way that I'm tricking myself into, into <laughs> writing. But yeah, so there's this big book about like inequality and socioeconomic disparity in Connecticut, which is very like Ooh. map and place based. So I'm kind of interested in that right now. As usual, I've taken off, I've bitten off much more than I can chew, but yeah, so. Mm -hmm. Well, that's also part of the recess projects, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, then I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe that's one way not to do the big book. I don't know. But I'm the last person to talk because I've been plotting away at a novel for a really long time. And oh, it's that's always, awesome. It's like the last thing on my list. Um, so what is something that, aside from the big project that you are sort of working on, is there something that you find continues to be challenging for you in your own writing? And I, I, you know, when I was first starting to write, I, I imagine that once you knew how to do it, it would just be pretty easy and Gosh. seamless. And, but I am always curious for accomplished writers, especially those with books out and who teach, what comes up for you often that is something that will always be an area you have to push yourself through? I, I tell you, I really struggle with structure. I think partially mm, because my brain is very, like, I'm very associative, mm. but that means that I could see a million paths to go, and I sometimes forget that the direction ultimately has to be forward. So I end up, like, making a ton of diagrams about possible <laughs> structures. Like, they're everywhere in my office. Like, I've got a whiteboard. Yeah. Uh, are you so, a math person, too? Um... Like, uh, like math, like mathematics? Yeah. Um, no. Okay, good. I was worried. Because maybe there's hope for me because I'm a terrible person when it comes to math and these diagrams and structures you're describing seem out of my reach. Like, I don't think I could do it. Like, my mind doesn't work that way. Oh, gosh. I just love bubbles and like, right, just <laughs> like very messy, like, you know, things connected to other things and arrows. Like, at least that gives me an illusion that I know where I'm going. But, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but yeah, so actually because of sort of the structure problem, my books take many, many, many drafts. Mm. And I have, I have friends who, you know, I admire from a distance because they can sort of polish one sentence and go to the next sentence and go to the next sentence. And I just have to write the same book over and over and over again. Interesting. And I don't have that kind of tenacity. I feel like I, I hate... I hate that anything takes any time at all. I'm like an <laughs> incredibly impatient person. So I know writers who do start from scratch. And I remember Deborah Gwartney actually told me I'd have to rewrite the book over and over and over again. And mm. I just was stunned that that was something. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I just wanted to be naturally brilliant. 
you know? <laughs> right. And also very quick, right? <laughs> yes, very quick. Yes, very quick. While, while apparently not being fit to raise teenagers. Um, so what are some of the memoirs that you like to go back to that have really helped you in your, in your writing that you would recommend? One of the first books that really struck me, I think one of the first pieces of memoir or nonfiction that I read was um, Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And it is so voicey. And mm-hmm. so I love her voice in that book because it's sort of like mischievous and like out of the box. And so I always go back to that. And then there's another book. It's an older book by James Agee called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men. <laughs> I've heard of it, yeah. And that, it's, it's a huge, it's pretty big. Um, and it's just, it's also very weird. <laughs> and so, you know, it's about like sharecroppers in the South in the 30s, but the voice and the structure, like it's so, it's just so weird. I don't know how else to describe it. And so as soon as I read that book, it just lit something on fire in my brain. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you could do this with nonfiction. <laughs> so I think those are two among many that really like sort of opened the horizon up for me. Yeah. Isn't that amazing that yeah. reading them kind of lit that spark in you and showed you? That's why that's why reading widely and, and, and the fact that you wrote a book on voice is so helpful. Is there is there a, another piece of advice you'd like to share with memoirs or writers in general or and or something that you really hope readers of Voice First will take away that you would like to leave our episode with? Definitely. And you know, what I often do myself, if a piece isn't working, and I give this assignment to my students, is I often will put it aside, and then write a different little, just a five minute free write that starts with what I really want to say is. Mm. And somehow, if I put the essay aside, that kind of opens something up. And like, because it's a quick five-minute timed piece, the assignment is small, but the question is so big mm-hmm. that it, it sort of allows me and pushes me to come up with as true of a thing as I know at the moment, and maybe it's a thing that I'm dancing around in the whole essay. I love that. I can already feel how that would help me, <laughs> you know? Awesome. It's just like a, almost like a hiatus or a little oasis where – the pressure's off. I feel like sometimes yeah. it's so much about taking the pressure off of us so we Definitely. can really get to what's going on. Right. Like let's set the bar as low as we can instead of like, right, pressuring ourselves all the time. Yes. Thank you so much. I I just, I'm, I'm so happy to talk with you. You're so much fun to talk with. And do you have some links or is there a website where listeners can find more about you and your work? Yes. You can find me at sonyahoover.com. Okay. And I will put that link as well as the books you suggested in the show notes at the bottom of the show notes so people can connect easily. And thank you so much for being my guest. It was really great to talk with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok.
If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here. 